Hello and welcome to episode 288 of Retro Encounter, RPG Fans Weekly Podcast of Many Topics. I'm Mike Solosi, and we are a podcast of many topics, but listeners, you probably have guessed today's topic. We are going to visit Dragon Quest IV Chapters of the Chosen for the second time this month. It is Dragon Quest Month, May 2021, and I'm joined by the same four chosen as last episode, starting with Zach Wilkerson. Hi there. And Audra Bowling. Hello. Wes Iliff. Hi there. And Alana Hayes. Heyo. All right. So we're in chapter five, all five of us, and we managed to, I think we all managed to finish this game. It was a uh, a merciful 20 hours that I was slightly worried I'd have to pull an all-nighter to finish, but didn't. So I am more chipper than usual. Because <laughs> uh, Alana, the last time we played a DS game for the podcast, I was not chipper for that episode. That was a longer game as well. <laughs> Indeed it was. But uh, Dragon Quest IV, it's a 1990 RPG. We were all playing either the DS or mobile remake of it, all, both of which were based on the PS1 version, I discovered doing some background research this time. Mm-hmm. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, I thought this was pretty good. It, it, was, <laughs> a, it was a warm, cozy, nostalgic replay. It, didn't, it never wore down on me. I never felt like my time was being wasted. There was breadcrumbs that pointed me where I needed to go. This is a well-designed game that holds up shockingly well 31 years after the fact, is my overall feeling. But uh, Alana and Audra, you were both the uh, new new players of Dragon Quest IV for the purposes of this podcast. So give me your impressions have, with both of you having finished it recently. Uh, starting with you, Alana. Ah, yeah, same boat, really. I really liked it. I was surprised at a few things. Um, it's definitely a little bit more forward-thinking than I was expecting, which... Um, yeah, like considering that it's night, what was it, 1990, I think we just said it came out originally. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, um, I was also really pleasantly surprised at how good the mobile port was as well. Like it seemed to have, the, the whole game has like tons of character, which is not really something I'm necessarily used to from RPGs of that era, or they were just kind of coming into fashion. Um, I did like how it all came together towards the end and all the characters rejoined. Um, but yeah, I was just kind of pleasantly surprised. And I always am with Dragon Quest games, like, I, I've played half the numbered entries now and I'm still always really pleasantly surprised at how nice they are. You know what I mean? Like, I think they're comfortable yeah. and I, w- I should play them more often is what I'm saying. <laughs> and I'm agreeing with you. Uh, I mean, this is not a shocker. I'm a big, I'm a big Dragon Quest fan and that is well, pu- and that is well publicized on the website and my social media and this podcast uh, so I am always in favor of um, people I know playing more Dragon Quest. But Audra, you were in a similar boat to Alana. Um, this is your first time playing Dragon Quest Four. So what were your overall impressions finishing it? I really enjoyed it. I liked the storyline. I was actually pleasantly surprised by it. I thought it would be thinner, I guess. Not as substantial. But it ended up being a pleasant surprise. The story, and I liked the layout of the game, and... Yeah, finding certain items just helped really uh, quite a bit. <laughs> uh, both of you mentioned being surprised. What, what was maybe one surprising thing that uh, that you weren't expecting in the game? Probably the whole Rose storyline. Yeah. Like in general, and this is not like a dig at Dragon Quest, certainly most of the games I've played, I would say the only villain that I really have stuck with me for all of them is... Uh, oh gosh, um, Ladger from Five. Like, I don't, I know Dolmagus, Dolmagus is fine, and then some of the other villains I've played from the other games are good, but like, Sorrow and Rosa and their storyline in particular, like, really stands out to me. Like, 
even before that, not many games had really taken an opportunity to look at their villain and go, well, hang on a minute, here's the catalyst for what may have happened. Yeah, so many NES RPGs have villains that come out of left field or or don't feel like they've built they've been properly built up. But Sorrow is very present from very early on, and uh, when you do eventually fight him, it feels like um, an epic clash that had been in the background until that moment. Um, and we'll talk about Sorrow later. I'm I'm 100 certain. But uh, Zach, this is your first time playing Dragon Quest IV after a while. Uh, how, how does it hold up for you? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's been a few years. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that um, it is a, a very comfortable RPG. And um, as we were talking about, you know, sort of in the chat beforehand, like, I feel like 4, 5, and 6 all play, in 7 to some degree, all play pretty similarly. So, like, I liked being able to do it at sort of like a lower level, uh, just kind of knowing how Dragon Quest games work, um, which I thought was fun. Um, but and I, I've said this before, like, it, it feels so much like the start of the story-based rpgs of the super nintendo um mm-hmm. like it still has a little bit of the nes like um i'm not sure where to go you have to talk to these npcs and i'll admit that i may have relied on a guide just for time purposes this time <laughs> um and not talk to npcs as much as maybe i should have to figure out where, where i'm going but like i like that it has a little bit of feel of that you need to talk to npcs to figure out where to go but that story driven not in like a even final fantasy 4 kind of way but in a in a way that indicates where the genre is about to go um and i feel like in 90 um maybe fantasy star 2 had done that but it it wasn't common yet yeah there's weird event flagging in this game sometimes and it's (laughs) it's i don't think it's even event flagging you could probably if you know exactly what item to get or where to go next uh you probably can just accomplish those tasks without hearing about it from town but the oh, game that's definitely a thing I did. Yes. Yeah, but yeah, right. <laughs> but but the game definitely intends for you to explore around, use every location that you know and all the information that you know to ask around and figure out exactly where to go next. And sometimes it's it's not even that obvious. Uh, like like uh, at one point you need to use items in the treasure room of one castle to get to the next castle. Mm-hmm. And it uh, we'll, again we'll get into that a little bit later. But uh, Wes, I want to hear from you. I believe of the five of us, you've played Dragon Quest IV the most, and maybe have and maybe hold it uh, um, the the dearest to your heart. Dare I say? I mean, you're you're saying yeah. how it was it was a true all time favorite for you in the previous episode. So um, that, how, what was going through your heart and mind replaying it this time? Well, you know, it's it's still been a little while since I've played it, but Dragon Quest IV has always been my favorite in the series, and it's a series that, you know, I hold pretty dearly as it is. Uh, and this time around, you know, I'm, I am I think about games a little bit more deeply than maybe I did the last time that I played this, and I started to be able to get a better feel for exactly why I love this so much. And part of it's that, you know, that comfortable loop of the first time you set out of a town in a Dragon Quest game, it's something special and unique, and you get that so many times in this. Uh, but it's also kind of the how straightforward a lot of the decision making is you've got these really nice robust characters but you kind of know what they're about when you get them like when when it comes time to build a party it becomes very simple you never feel like you're falling behind at any point because oh i haven't been using this character and all of a sudden they're essential they're generally all growing with you you're understanding kind of what the tools you have in uh, in your tool chest are um and and it's got this you know distinct charm to it because you can just kind of sit back and and enjoy the game without having to stress about it, uh, which is a nice change of pace from a lot of thought-intensive RPGs. 
Right. Um, th this game has distinct characters and a story design and gameplay design that feels like it all neatly fits together. Like, a, a, again, I, I've compared Dragon Quest games to Jigsaw puzzles in the, pa in the past because the whole feels greater than the sum of their parts and the parts all feel like that they neatly mesh together and uh story threads are tied for the end game and it, it's I, I think that just goes into yuji hori's um narrative design and, and game design sensibilities he he likes games to be nice and for them to wrap up nicely uh and it, i think that's successful in dragon quest 4 people that are maybe critical of act 3 and dragon quest 11 maybe wish uh, his des design sensibilities were less nice but yeah, Dragon Quest Four is nice. Um, I hadn't played it since uh, first playing the, the DS version, which would have been 08 or 09, I think. Uh, so it's been 12 or 13 years. But I had a, a lot of fun. I And when I was trying to remember things um, in the previous episode, like I think I mentioned that Tornico ends his chapter by finding a ship. I was conflating what he does in chapter five with what he does in chapter three because <laughs> at the point I hadn't finished chapter three yet. So like I, I, I there was a lot of things I half remembered or didn't totally remember, and playing through it in Chapter 4, excuse me, playing it through uh, this time around, like, things were coming back to me, and uh, parts, and, and, like, familiar things were falling back into place. I didn't remember there was a, a kingdom named Femiscira, like, <laughs> like oh, maybe, right. a, 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 you know, a female slash Themyscira reference that I definitely would have gotten 12 years ago but didn't remember. Everything about this game felt familiar and cozy, but it also had a design that I think held up. And and again, I am surprised that this was a 1990 game design that uh, was largely unchanged um, through multiple versions. I think the PS1 version added the uh, Chapter 6 post-game. They yeah, added they the, uh, the the Immigrant Town side quest with... And um, added the uh, uh, controlling your parties direct your party members directly instead of uh, strictly with AI, which was the most important change of all, of course. <laughs> yes. uh, like changes that I would say are are positive and, and unobtrusive in general. Uh, so let's see where we left off. Uh, essentially, you start at level one again in chapter five, uh, and as you go through the game, things that happened in the previous four chapters sort of come full circle a little bit uh uh like you hear about the happenings going on in zamoxfa castle and in uh and in palais de leon that uh were uh, that elena and the and the uh and the sisters did in chapters two and four you uh use the tunnel that torneco um sp like sponsors and, and produces in chapter three <laughs> to to reach the um western part of that continent you hear about what happened in Strathbale and uh, and uh, Ragnar's castle at, at some point, and then you can sort of revisit them once you get the ship that Torneco had purchased to you know to further his uh, mercantile career. And you you can assemble the full party of eight pretty quickly. Like you go from one to eight in just a matter of a few hours, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean it, it happens. Yeah pretty early. Um, I mean, and I like that it happens in reverse order. It's kind of interesting. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I think that it um, it's exciting every time you get one of those characters too. Um, like every time you meet one, like, oh yeah, Ragnar. Um, <laughs> like I, I feel like it's um, it, it it pays off that you know I don't feel like the pace of the first four chapters is slow, but like it it pays off that that setup in a way that I think is really satisfying. Even today, like I remember in 
the early 90s when I, I first watched a playthrough or played it myself like I, it was like genuinely like exulting sort of like you know when you like when you upgrade in final fantasy one um it, it felt kind of like that to me yeah and i guess like as well um this is the first time you're mu- well some in some chapters you would have heard some of the characters speak because they're not on their own but like this is kind of like your idea of their personality or what you've garnered through party chat has now coming to full front as well like coming full circle so not only mm-hmm. is like it's just exciting because you're finally meeting these characters that you've got all these ideas about and some of them are either fulfilled or some of them aren't and you get this really good picture of this really like motley crew kind of thing um but yeah it was really fun to pick them up and they're they've all got like their own little trail to get as well because like the sisters you have to um they're after the hero aren't they and one of them's gambling in the casino the other one's like reading fortunes <laughs> and then you go to a cave and then they go missing and it's like oh god but yeah <laughs> And it, it's almost a chain reaction finding them to get the items you need because you, you, like you need the sisters to uh, g- to get the uh, the symbol of faith in that cave because you need three people to open the doors and then with the symbol of faith you can get the wagon that lets you cross the desert and then once you meet Tornico and help him in the lighthouse you get a ship that let that unlocks the rest of the world for you and then by recruiting Elena and her and her crew you get the thief's key that opens up more doors for you and with the thief's key you can. Uh, challenge you can challenge the uh, Marquis de Leon and have Ragnar join you, and then once you you defeat Leon with Ragnar, you can uh, fight Balzac and get revenge for the sisters. And once you fight Balzac, you use the items in the treasure room there to unlock more parts of the world. It's a crazy chain reaction of events that sort of build onto each other until you get to a more uh, non-linear section of the middle of chapter five. But it uh, it, it just I don't even though a lot of the game is talking around and figuring things out and just exploring unexplored parts of the map with your ship or your hot air balloon later on it it, if the pacing feels feels brisk like I don't Mm. think this is a slow laborious game and I I only had to check uh, a guide to figure out what to do next uh, once or twice because I my my dumbass couldn't figure out that I had to have tomfoolery at the front of my party and he and he and I couldn't I couldn't just talk to the king or or pick in an inventory spot or something like there was there were curious uh uh like sort of game active gameplay choices but um I feel like this game uses all of the space it gives you and moves quickly mm. and, and and it's appreciated yeah I mean Alina having the thief key feels a bit redundant when she just kicks doors down all the time so <laughs> like maybe my favorite part maybe it's the so best good. introduction to any type of character <laughs> in the history of the series which is something. I think we just have more uh, women drop kicking doors down in video games in general. Yeah. I, I support it. I can get behind that. Absolutely. <laughs> there is a, a lot going on in the in chapter five. Again, it's it's something like sixty percent of the game. Do we have a favorite moment or a favorite sequence that uh, anyone wants to bring up specifically? Hmm. Alina's intro is just yeah. awesome. <laughs> Agreed. How determined she was to uh, to help out Carol and how sort of accepting of her stubbornness Boria was because because Boria joins you before Alina and Carol do and he's like oh yeah this is the princess being the princess let, let her do her thing we'll find we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll find the magic herb I mean I just love that the people who are accompanying Alina into that ice cave are like after she kicks the door down they're like oh, she you know she has the key she didn't actually need <laughs> <laughs> she didn't yeah. that door down uh, but you know it's it's fine <laughs> I, I just think that um, I mean, again, like you're talking about an NES RPG here, like even um, 
like in the NES version, you get a little bit. You, you don't have party chat, of course, um, but like just like the way they establish characterization with her um, in particular, I think it's which is why she's such a fan favorite. Um, I think that moment in particular is one of the reasons she's such a fan favorite. Probably the main reason is how often she crits, but and how she gains <laughs> she gains like six strength and seven agility with every level. Yeah, until, like and she, agility, yeah. She, and she can max it all out at a in the fifty to sixty range, which is right. crazy. Uh-huh. I throw a meteor bracer on Kirill, and she's still acting before him. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I just think that it's I, I'm not trying to ape on a lot or Audra's uh, moment because but it is my, it oh, is no. my favorite <laughs> in the early oh, no, chapter fine. five. You know, there are these these moments of of spectacle. There are a lot of really cool things that happen regardless of the version, like going up to Zenithia for the first time. Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. it's oh, yeah. such a big, impactful moment to kind of walk on the clouds and and see this race that's only been hinted at, and like you know, see a dragon in your Dragon Quest and get to talk with it and not fight it. That's a satisfying experience. But what I was kind of impressed with are some of the little bits of animation that were obviously introduced in the PS1 version, like, you know, draining a waterfall to to go explore this cave and find a liquid metal sword or, and I'm sure we'll get to this, but the way that the final boss moves between phases of that final battle, there's this crazy spectacle that goes along with it that, you know, you still don't see in 2D animation today that often. Yeah, uh skipping ahead a little bit um when you fight sorrow after he uses the secret of evolution he starts out just looking like a gold version of a stark which is a, a mm-hmm. boss from only mm-hmm. a little bit earlier but uh he goes through seven that's a seven phase battle where he loses it uh both arms then his he, head then he loses his head then a new face materializes on his chest then he regrows his arms and a second head and his legs extend out and it, it's it's sort of weirdly grotesque and surprising and long-lasting that final boss fight it uh i I think maybe we mentioned it on 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 the draft episode but it just goes on forever and ever and it becomes a battle of attrition to a degree if you if you don't have the uh uh what is it called the the baron's bugle or something oh yeah yeah baron's bugle yeah if you you don't have the the horn item that lets you summon your uh your wagon and 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 not, and you don't have your full complement of party members. I mean, I I don't think I could have done it. I had to switch people out just uh, just to have extra you know extra HP to absorb his attacks and extra um, healers to come in to to not die all the time. I don't know if I was over leveled or under leveled. I was around level thirty three, thirty four range for uh, for the final version of Sorrow, but it was a little bit of a of a close shave. Um, but I, I also felt like I never had to really do much grinding in this game. I got a little bit lucky and fought like five liquid metal slimes, or <laughs> like yeah, killed five liquid good. metal slimes yeah. in one in just one dungeon. Yep. Where I had the exact same experience. <laughs> oh, 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 was it was it the was it the royal crypt? Yep. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, but in, in in most floors of the royal crypt, you only have four party members, the, the four you brought in. So like I I killed five liquid metal slimes, but only half of my party got to reap the benefits. It's because the, the game's weird about like uh, some dungeons you have all eight, some dungeons you only have four. It depends on what kind of building you're entering or exiting, it, and that's a, a little annoying. But I for most of the second half of the game. Uh, I think it was like Hero, Ragnar, Kirill, and uh, Maya were just way higher than the other four. Yeah, I didn't have to. I did do a little bit of grinding, but I I do like killing metal slimes. It's like my favorite thing to do. I don't know why. It's just satisfying. Like, I... go ahead. Oh, I I think I grind ground a little bit um, during the Marquis de Leon fight, That's and that right. was about it. That oh yeah. Cool. Yeah, I, I was a. I think I was under leveled for that. I was maybe in the fifteen or sixteen range, and I uh, died pretty hard. 
I didn't have any way of uh, restoring a fallen party member, so I leveled up until uh, e either Kirill or Mina or both learned Zing, and then I and then I tried again, and it, 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 level twenty was maybe over leveled for him. But um, th that that is a, a surprisingly difficult fight fight for the mid game. Yeah, Zing's but, a frustrating spell, isn't it? Oh, oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, one of the reasons that sorrow took me so long is because I cast Zing on Kirill like four times. I was like, nope, didn't work, nope, didn't work, nope, didn't work. Oh, oh, it's the worst. And there is a life-healing item, but you're only allowed to have one at a time. It, only off the tree, because I definitely yeah. had more than one. You can pluck the leaves off oh. the Yggdrasil tree, but you can yeah, actually you... get them out of chests in other dungeons, so you can have, That's like, right, two or yeah. three on you. But, yeah, it's a really weird It's a really weird thing. It's like, no, you can only pick one leaf, but it's like, oh, I can just go yeah, yeah, get it out yeah, of the can... chest. I mean, you, you can get one for free at the tree, like you said, but only if there's none in your inventory. Yeah, at all. exactly. Uh, but right. I think you're right. I think you're right. I had one from the tree, but then I found one in a chest in like the final dungeon. So I did have two, and I think I used one of them uh, for the, uh, just for um, sorrow at the end. But yeah, again, like I never felt like the bosses were unfair, and I never felt like I had to grind. Although, although I did by choice for Marquis de Leon. I don't know, just all the pieces fit, uh, fit so well together. And even the, the secret of evolution thing that is uh, part of the final conflict, that's something that was introduced in Chapter 4, and then you encounter when you uh, fight Leon and Balzac back-to-back -back early in Chapter 5, and then sort of comes full circle when Sorrow combines the secret of evolution with that random bracelet you had to trade in Chapter 2 with <laughs> Alina to become that grotesque seven uh, grotesque seven stage final boss battle it's there are so many smart callbacks in this game that i cannot believe it's 1990 it was a 1990 game i we're going to keep saying that over and over but it bears repeating <laughs> but oh let's see um you know one part of the game that uh is maybe my favorite uh is right after you beat balzac you have a ship you have your full complement of eight characters and you have a couple items uh from the treasure room of zamogsva castle that really opens up the game because your your uh, next goal is to get the four pieces of Zenithian equipment mm -hmm. and you don't have a lot of uh, prompting on how exactly to do that. This is this is the Dragon Quest 3 part of the game because yeah. more than half of Dragon Quest 3 is you need the six orbs, go get them. And, and you have to sort of figure it out. And this is like a, a somewhat more truncated version of what, the, of what DQ3 does, but it's, I don't know. It felt like a quint. It felt like quintessential Dragon Quest. I was like, I was revisiting every town, talking to people, allowing myself to zoom back to previous towns, figuring out where to go. Um, oh, I got to blow up a mountain with a magma rod. All right, let's do it. Uh, it, it that was a really fun, <laughs> satisfying part of the game for me. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, and I feel like it, it, it is. You're right. It's, it's a callback to Dragon Quest Three, but I think that um, you know because it is like a shorter period of time, like you can. I mean, like the the sword, I think comes last, of course. But um, the other three, like I feel like the way the game is designed, like in Dragon Quest Three, like if you try to get like one of the orbs, I don't remember which one, like first, like you're just gonna die, like over and over again. Whereas here, like I feel like you genuinely could do them in any order, and it felt it felt satisfying to me to be able to just kind of like engage with that in the order that I wanted because it was a short enough span of time that like grinding and like trying to figure out like okay where's what, what's the the random encounters like how hard are they compared to this other area which i feel like is like a part of those early dragon quest games that i didn't necessarily enjoy um like here it, it felt better to me 
you know what really stands out to me? Um, you mentioned it at the beginning of that, that that talk there, you know, zooming all over the place. We're talking about an NES game with fast travel, which, you know, Dragon Quest was doing that a lot of things weren't before, and it, it makes revisiting these areas and these towns so much less painful mm-hmm. to just be able to zoom back to anywhere you've gone yes. at any time. There are games made in the 2010s that I wish had fast travel as good as Dragon Quest IV. Yeah. <laughs> But again, none of it feels cheap. You, you sort of have to explore around to get all of these things and figure things out. And uh, like, uh, I think maybe it's best to go for the shield, the Zenithian shield first, because um, in that uh, Femiscura quest, you also get the ultimate key that lets you open up a bunch of jail cell doors and, and other yes. special doors. Right. And so and that opens up the game further. Every little thing you do in this game feels rewarding in a way that I, I just can't believe... Uh, how good this must have felt in 1990, even though when I tried to play the game in the early 90s, I was, I think I was eight and could not figure it all out. <laughs> yeah, how how satisfying is it to to have those moments where, like, you get a new key and you remember, like, the half dozen towns that had the doors that matched that new key yeah. and, like, going mm-hmm. back and picking something, you know, up some some treasure chest that's been taunting you since Ragnar's chapter. <laughs> yeah, that's it's like one of my that... favorite feelings in Dragon Quest. Yeah, I, me too. I, I think... <laughs> I don't think they do it in Dragon Quest 1 and 2, but they do it in almost every other one, and it is great every time. You feel like a genius by the end of it. It's such a good feeling. Yeah, yeah. Um, like, the one thing I do like about the Zenithian stuff is, um, like, you don't get any of them the same way. Like, I think one of them's in a yeah. dungeon, and then you said tomfoolery earlier, didn't you? Like, that was one of the ones mm. I would have been stumped with. Like, oh, you've got to make the king laugh. And it's like, well, how do you do that? And you have to remember this random character back from chapter two, chapter four, right? It, it, I don't even know if he'd appeared in that chapter, but like you have I'm, to... I'm not, I'm not sure either. It's, it's, uh, there, I, I, there's I, an NPC like in the castle that tells you uh, like, hey, there's yeah. like, Tom. Oh, oh yes, funny. there is. Yeah, there is. Um, but yeah, like it, I didn't add like two and two together immediately, even though I'd talked to that person, but like, yeah, you don't have to do any combat to get it. Like it, it's just, there are different ways that you have to get these items. And I just think it's really neat for the time, really. Yeah, I don't think I talked to that NPC first. I was, uh, like we mentioned before, I wanted to fill out my Zoom list, so I just went over to Fake Argentina, yeah. where the where Chapter Four begins. <laughs> okay, 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 I don't know huh. if you mentioned this, but the, the world map is a vague, vaguest of the vague approximation of the real world map, <laughs> even though the you know everyone in the French uh, that speaks with the French accent is in South America, which isn't great, and um the but but the almost embarrassingly bad australian accents are kind of in australia-ish so it's they they, they at least tried to <laughs> so they it, were australian it wasn't I just me so. yeah no, okay I think, I think riverton is supposed to be australian yeah, yeah. that's quite funny is, is it riverton or river something else river it's riverton i think okay riverton, yeah, yeah. I, I, knew, I knew it was river something like it was like like riverdale or riverton or river phoenix i'm not <laughs> sure that's <laughs> another really cool like village as well like because you go into yeah. it so differently and like that whole area because you've got the big statue as well and that's another really good like spectacle of animation in particular like just the way that you climb up that like massive tower that's a like statue and then you activate it and it moves across the river that was really cool but yeah riverton is riverton's weird like i don't i can't really think of anything close to that kind of design from that same period again it's it's almost like a a big water city like venice except instead of being a, a network of canals with ornate architecture it's kind of like shacks on the side of a beach i'm i'm not, I'm not really sure they're going for there but you have to ride your full-size ship between different sides of the town like, like it's around a massive k or a, or a bay or something but uh but, but 
that that giant statue that that was a cool spectacle of animation that also made me a little suspicious like man that the, all these demons like this is their front doorstep they uh, like <laughs> every every single time someone has to go go visit uh uh visit that castle like a, a giant statue has to take five steps forward it, like th- that's a little suspicious <laughs> this is why demons have wings apparently exactly. this is why they all evolved wings yep <laughs> yeah too bad for all of those I don't know the the lion demons or the or the ones that look like giant cyclops. Like like how are how are they? Lucifer. Yeah, I think Lucifers have wings. Tiny little. They have tiny little ones, don't yeah, they? Tiny little yeah. Ones. yeah, like like those are like this guy have pretty wings. Like they're barely. Maybe uh, they can all not, zoom. Not the most useful. Yeah. Yeah. Oh no, they've all been there before, so now they can zoom there. Oh, uh, there you yeah. go. Man, that that's better than a metro card having zoom. Yeah. So, so in this section, um, collecting the Zenithian equipment. Uh, and, and the Zenithian equipment and um, visiting Zenithia is repeated in Dragon Quest Five and Six somewhat. But even though you're you're, you're only in Zenithia for like thirty minutes in Dragon Quest Four, they're sort of a larger part of the game and introduced much earlier in Dragon Quest Five and Six. But Four set the tone for the two uh, Super Famicom Dragon Quest games. I remembered more things in Dragon Quest Five and Six playing or replaying for this time because of what i remembered carrying over to the next games yeah i mean especially in the ds versions like like the, the design is especially between like four and five i remember like very vividly because when i played the ds versions i played like five and then i played four back to back um and it's basically the same like i feel like that like that, that connection of yeah. like even though like there's no like direct connection with the zenithian trilogy like mm-hmm. you can still feel like it feels like this is thousands of years in the future, and I think it's really cool that they draw that connection. I don't remember from the NES version to the Super Nintendo version if that was true or not. It's it's been oh on those. <laughs> yeah, fans speculate a lot about a lot of that online, like like uh, whether these uh, four, five, and six take place like thousands of years apart, and the and the shape of the world changes over that time. Or if this uh, Zenithia is sort of an interdimensional traveling castle that exists in multiple <laughs> spaces at, at once, so the, the so four, five, and six are different worlds, but it's the same Zenithia. There's all kinds of weird theories like that, but it, it, it's not a linear. Uh, the games happen in this order necessarily, like how it is for Dragon Quest one, two, and three. This is a um, they have a lot of connections to each other, but in all four of them, uh, you assemble, you collect the Zenithian equipment, you visit Zenithia. And uh, there's, you know, castles in the sky. Um, <laughs> but it's, 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 it is a pretty cool castle in the sky. Yeah. And in four, the hero is a descendant or like their mother or father is an Athian. Because I, I think we skipped over the I think the it beginning. was the mother. Yeah. Is there a way to meet your mother in Dragon Quest Four? Because I think they even mentioned that like, like uh, she, she married a woodcutter. The wood, uh, yes. a human woodcutter. Then, he, then the woodcutter dies. And then in her grief, um, the hero's mother... Uh, uh, had the baby adopted to someone um, on the surface, but never left Zenithia again. But is there a way to find your mom? I I, I, I looked and couldn't find her. I, I don't think so. I believe they mention her passing. There is like one okay. NPC that oh, yeah. you can run into that mentions it, like offhand. It's, it's yeah. not oh, really yeah. highlighted. Now I remember that. Yeah, because I remember thinking, because um, we didn't mention it at the beginning, but like chapter five starts off with you in the village, like you, like right at the beginning of the prologue. So mm-hmm. yeah, and th- th- that's when Sorrow and his like army of monsters like invade and the, and everybody rushes to protect you. They like shuffle you out the way. They stuff you, shove you down in like this underground cellar area. And your best friend is like, 
she sacrifices herself and it's really quite horrible but then you'll adopt your parents you don't know they're adoptive at the time they're like we need to tell you something we're not your real parents you need to go out there and be a hero and that's how everything starts off and mm. it's not until you get to Zenithia that you suddenly realize that it's just dropped that oh you know the hero is one of ours and she's or he or she is on the surface and uh, we, we, we might be able to say she did anyone go with a boy hero this time I did. Ah, all right. Uh, it's, it's fine. It's fine. Eighty percent is eighty percent is a pretty good number. <laughs> Missing out on the best hair in gaming, but it's all right. Hey, I, I I used a female last time. Fair enough. Fair enough. I I used a male last time, so this time I had to I had to join the good hair club. Obviously. <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting. You know, the, the, there are all of these uh, ideas from fans about. How do these games fit together, especially in these two kind of distinct trilogies? And I think that those questions of like deep lore and how these games connect are just not questions Dragon Quest cares about. I, no, it's I don't quite think it cares at all. Yeah, it's quite refreshing, to be honest. Like, I mean, I love stuff like that, but also, yeah, like you kind of get the complete experience in one go. And that's not, you can't say that about many things, can you really? It's the anti Kingdom Hearts. Yeah. Correct. <laughs> the anti Tales. Yeah, no, I, I was thinking, I was going to say anti-trails because... Yeah, Tales and Trails, you got to read all the yeah. supplementary material and you've got to listen oh, to the man. audiobooks and the drama CDs and, uh, oh, you might want to buy that bracelet because it might have some hint on it or something. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just... And I know there are no numbers in this game, but it's uh, in the title of this game, but it's actually the sixth game in a series of ten and two of them are <laughs> Japan only and I'm not making any of that up. No. Nope. Uh, anyway... <laughs> I, I, I enjoy trails. I enjoy Kiseki, but some, but there are some, uh, you know, trying parts of it. Let's say, and while well, uh, Dragon Quest Four and most Dragon Quests are in a neat little package, this neat little package, uh, a- after you uh, learn more about your heritage by going to the, um, the the different countries that know a little bit more about Zenithia than you do, uh, you you finally. Uh, get a hot air balloon because you need a gas canister of all things that the, <laughs> that the king of the underworld from, th- from a thousand years ago stole. right yeah right <laughs> right it's like of all the things of all the things to need it's a gas canister and a vaguely medieval fantasy rpg and of all the things to happen to that gas canister the king of the underworld stole all of the remaining ones <laughs> just having a big grill up and he's got you got to get hell warm somehow haven't you like <laughs> he, he is a big angry horned blue man that is stark yeah and and then you have to revisit uh an, a space from chapter four and it's like oh like this is the mine that had the miasma yeah um, 10 hours ago and oh now we know where the miasma comes from because it's the king of the underworld that sorrow was trying to revive uh is is sleeping there and he and the stark even amusingly begins the battle of sleep right yeah <laughs> things like, have gotten marginally worse <laughs> since you left <laughs> yeah like right before this you have to infiltrate the hall don't you the diabolic hall and you have to use mm-hmm. the transformation staff don't you because um you yeah, get a yeah. hint from somewhere that's like oh if you use this staff which is one of the treasures you pick up um you can turn into a monster that was fun i quite like that mm-hmm. <laughs> The only thing I didn't like about it was that, like, every time I used it, I wasn't sure what I was going to transform into. I'm like, am I going to be a monster this right, time? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I transformed into a whole bunch of dancing girls first. Yeah. <laughs> I think I was old. Yeah, I was old men and old women before finally landing on one of those uh, one of those peeper creeper eye monsters. <laughs> They're cute. 
You know what's cool about Dragon Quest IV, though, is it very neatly sidesteps the Zelda problem where you go into a dungeon and you find the item you need for that dungeon. That mod rod is, like, nowhere near where you actually need yeah. to use it. You get it. No. And, and you find out you need the mod rod by, by, by picking up the flute from, from Zamoxfa, then uh, taking a nap in Strathbale, where everyone says, we're having the same dream and it's That's weird. That's right. And then you see Sorrow playing the flute in Rosehaven, to um to meet his lo- his love his love Rose. So you go to Rosehaven, play the flute that you got, and then you talk to Rose. She tells you, "Oh yeah, I'm Sorrow's girlfriend, but humans uh, persecute me because I cry ruby tears." And then the little slime hanging out there is like, "Hey, you can use the mod rod to enter the d- diabolic hall." <laughs> And then you use the ultimate cool. key that you get from Femiscara to go to the Royal Crypt and, uh, Crypt and unlock that and then go through a confusing dungeon with a bunch of Pokemon arrow floors. And then you get the mod oh, rod God. there. And you and if you miss the conversation with Rose and the Slime, you have no idea what to do with the mod rod. And uh, whew, thanks. I had to get all that off my chest. But like, <laughs> that was a like, it, That's it, good. It's a chain, chain reaction. I did, and I did that without visual aids. But you, you, uh, this is an audio-only uh, format, so believe me or not. But... Um, again, it, it's this chain reaction of stuff that isn't immediately evident, but when you accomplish it, you feel like a goddamn genius because uh, it, it, you feel like you explored it yourself and solved it yourself, unless you use a guide explicitly um, a lot, which, I, which I, 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 again, I did a couple times for this playthrough, but mostly mostly figured out on my own or, or, or vaguely remembered it from last time. Yeah. I, I mean, I'll a, admit that I, I, I used a guide liberally this time. It's um, a powerful feeling, though. It's, yeah, it's... but when I was a kid, like any of those first four Dragon Quest games, like <laughs> when you like finally figure out like this one spot you're supposed to go and there's like this one place you're supposed to go, it's like a feeling that you don't get from too many modern RPGs. And honestly, like I, me using a guide is a great example of why I'm like, I don't have patience for this. Like, I just want to get through it. <laughs> We're talking like the age before the internet. Like it was like, I remember the first time I played Dragon Quest Four and figuring out that mod rod thing, like it was exalting. Um, and that is. It feels like such a feeling that is exclusive to early Dragon Quest that is like kind of remarkable. Uh, unfortunately, I played the NES Dragon Quest games for the first time from rentals from Errol's video, so I only had them for <laughs> for probably four, perhaps eight days at a time, and I could not figure any of those things out. You needed a subscription to Nintendo Power, clearly. Yeah, was my, my grandparents would like give me little hints too. They'd be like standing over my shoulder. They'd be like, "Hey." Go there, go there, go there. That was kind of helpful. That's now, so ironically, <laughs> I'm usually the person at the end of the text chain when someone needs help with a weird RPG that I played seven years ago. <laughs> um, one, of my, one of my friends is playing Mass Effect for the first time, and he's and he's um you know texting me things like, "So is it worth it buying any equipment before the N7 gear?" And I'm like, "No, no." Uh, but <laughs> the uh, yeah, playing these without the internet when uh, only from rentals, so I was time limited was not the ideal way to play this. Uh, I think having them on a handheld system with the internet there if you need it is uh, is a great way to play this. I had so much fun revisiting Dragon Quest IV uh, for this podcast, and we've, we've mentioned him a couple times, but we're going to bring... I think we, it's time to talk about Sorrow in a little bit more detail right now, because I think this is the best NES villain that we've ever seen. Mm. Uh, like, like, like maybe... Really. Like I don't I I don't know how strongly you feel about the Mr. X Dr. Wily reveal in Mega Man Six or or or, or some or some I remember version. that very vividly. <laughs> yeah. uh, or, or or some version of uh, of what Bowser or Ganon do. But uh, Sorrow is introduced 
by name early, like in chapter one, there's the demon army assembling and there's a champion. In chapter two, there's this guy, Sorrow, that's the strongest person anyone's ever seen. In chapter three, I don't know, t- t- Tornado's kind of doing his own thing. But in chapter four, um, the secret of evolution is being sought by the demons and Marquis de Leon and Balzac, who have a connection to the sisters, uh, are, are both working for this guy named Sorrow. And then when you're locked in the secret room at the very beginning of chapter five, when you hear your best friend and your parents die, like one of the people there is this sorrow who believes he has extinguished the the hero of destiny. There is like such sorrow has such a presence. And then the first time you, you see him is maybe when he's, um, when he's wooing his, his elf girlfriend, Rose, is it Rosa or Rose? It's Rose. Rose, Cause it's Rose Rose Hill. Rose. Yeah. Rose Hill. I might have said a different uh, name because, again, I can't get any name right in podcasts now. Um, (laughs) Like, like, so you see, you you know of this terrifyingly strong commander of the demon army who hates humans. Then you see him with Rose and say, "Oh, he there's a sensitive side to him, and he hates humans because they're persecuting the love of his life." And then he's sort of manipulated by the other demons. You you run into a conversation between Amon and Barbados where they're like, where they kill Rose, blame it on the humans, allow Sorrow to go crazy so that presumably Barbados and Amon can, uh, or Amon maybe, uh, can t- can take over the demon army. So like, he's the strongest demon. He's being, uh, he hates humans. Uh, he's being betrayed by his own de- demon kind. And he has this, uh, th- th- a somewhat more uh, empathetic side to him. This is a level of complexity and intimidation that is just not present in uh, in RPGs or video game villains in general around this time. I'm so impressed with everything Sorrow does. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, even before, I mean, like, obviously, we'll, we'll talk maybe a little bit about the post game, but even before the post game, um, th- just like that, like us actually understanding what they're doing, um, and like, even if you compare them to like, I don't know, the Dragon Lord or Malroth or whoever, like, uh, we, we know why he's up to what he's up to um and it's not just like because the world needs to be destroyed i mean like i feel like (laughs) um and and it sounds ridiculous now and i feel like we we sometimes get a little obsessive about like villains where we know their motivations and they have cool ones And like you know i think about someone like kefka who's like the polar opposite and is amazing but um I, i feel like the first time i played it like i remember sympathizing with him um even on the nes before you get all that backstory because like all the Amon stuff is like totally added in like it's not in the mm-hmm. NES version mm-hmm. um even like the pre post game stuff with him is not added in but at least i understand why he hates someone and i like that a lot yeah i felt weirdly i don't want to say unsatisfied but i felt very strange going through that castle like i got more oh, i can't think of the right word for it but like I, I got him, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say. Like, I didn't feel totally good killing him or fighting him, because you don't kill him, um, because of I understood him. And, like, even when you go into that chamber, he's, like, just sitting there and he's... The music... I mean, this is because the music of Dragon Quest games is fairly limited. The music's fairly sad. It's, you know, and it's just... It's very different, again, I'm probably repeating everything that we've all said, but, like, it's very different to anything else I remember from that time. And, yeah, like, it never felt like a, oh, yeah, I've thought all the darkness and everything. It was more like a, oh, I stopped him, but, yeah, I don't don't know. Like, yeah, it was, he's good, he's great. It's it's really interesting. 
I mean, maybe Dark Force or Dark Fact or Dark something else also had, uh, you know, gravitas to them. But mm. I, I mean, I mean, uh, how many 1990 or earlier games have a truly tragic villain? Because uh, like, uh, I don't mean I don't want to put words in your mouth exactly, Alana. But when you're going through that final castle, you know you're there to kill Sorrow, but you know that Sorrow did is doing this out of love and grief, and that and that's just that feels awful that you're that you know you're going to be you're killing someone that just probably just wanted to have a happy life with his uh, with his loved one yeah and and, and uh, the the secret of evolution which is i don't i don't know exactly if it's translated differently in japanese but it, <laughs> it's basically a concept of uh forcibly transforming yourself and giving up your humanity or uh, and and your and your mental faculties for power but again balzac stole it from uh mina and maya's father uh then it, it, it was an ancient secret that a stark had used centuries earlier uh and you if you combine it with that amul amulet of transmutation that is in an earlier chapter then it, it's it's enhanced further um and sorrow use sorrow who's strong enough who probably doesn't need it to kick most people's asses uh like uses it after uh after rose's death to because he doesn't have much to live for anymore other than the the, the discretion the destruction of humankind which was exactly what Ammon wanted because Ammon is like I'm gonna like I'll have sorrow turn into a force of destruction he'll wipe out all of all of humanity then he'll burn out and uh and I can be the and I can be the ruler of the whole world and demonkind is I think basically Ammon's plan maybe it's slightly more complicated than that but uh, like like for all of that to tie up the way it does um the sorrow you're fighting is not the cool demon with a headband and a and a, and a katana <laughs> which is a, a hell of an edgelordy design for <laughs> whenever that uh whenever that ps1 remake happened i i think like some around 98 99 or something um like it's a it's like he's not that cool coll uh, collected demon anymore he's this big rage monster that you have to put down almost like a rabid dog or something yeah and it's almost kind of just sad that in a way that he lost himself that much but then you have an opportunity to change all of that. <laughs> After you beat chapter five, uh, you're allowed to reload your save and you unlock a secret chapter six by uh, uh, visiting um, Azimuth, which is the, uh, the the town right before Zenithia and the end game. Uh, you learn about this item called the Yggdrasil flower or Yggdrasil blossom that allows you to... Uh, to uh, to basically to reverse death under weird specific circumstances, um, so, so you have to go through this dungeon, fight a truly silly super boss um, <laughs> yeah. of, of, of two th two like Tweedledee and Tweedledum thieves. That again, that remind me a little bit of Salt and Pepper from uh, from oh uh, from Chrono Cross. Yeah, they do oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah, and also the oh, and also those two goofballs from Tales of Vesperia. I knew you, you, know you were going to say, yeah. right? <laughs> 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 say that. Yeah, I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> these are basically just the salt and pepper of, of different uh different decades uh but uh you you fight their names are chow main and Fu young um <laughs> and then they have vaguely chicken and egg themes to their designs so you, you beat them you get the uh, yggdrasil blossom you can use that to revive rose and then if you uh take rose to meet sorrow he'll come to his senses and join your party and holy moly does party member sorrow kick ass oh he does he's amazing <laughs> He learns all of the important um, offensive magic and defensive magic, except for like one spell each. I, I think like he doesn't learn Acceleratal, uh, Insulatal, or Kabuff because otherwise Christo, Mina, and Borea would be useless. 
and, but he learns uh, uh, almost all the good magic. He can equip almost all the good weapons and armor. He gets his own set of weapons and armor that you can fight that you can collect by fighting Chow Mein and Fu Young again. Mm. And he he just kicks so much ass that it's he's the best party member and it's not close with apologies to Elena, whom I love very much. <laughs> he can also <laughs> equip the cursed armor as well on the cursed weapons without any ramifications. Cause um, you have Ooh. to, you have to pay to have that removed. Don't you? If you give it to any of your normal characters. And mm-hmm. I think they, they've all got different debuffs. I think one of them reduces your like speed to zero or something, but yeah, Saro can equip all of those and have nothing. So like I could gear him up straight away at 35. Cause I'm, um, I beat the game in like the low 40s. I was quite overleveled by the end. Um, <laughs> and yeah, like I'm, I'm at the moment, I'm at the end of the chapter six and I'm like 47. So I don't think I'll have any problems, but yeah, like he just kicks, he kicks butt ridiculously. Like I was really surprised and I'm like, who do I take out? Ragnar or Kirill? And I cannot take out Alina. I cannot bring myself to do that. So my, my favorite party, I think, is um, Hero. Sorrow, uh, uh, Alina, and Ragnar, because he, mm. because between the hero and Sorrow, you have all of the good offensive and defensive magic, with the exception of those three spells that I mentioned before. And, and I think I think Maya is the only person that can use Puff, maybe. I think or, so. Uh, but it, just just because elite attacking is always is always useful, especially if you're metal slime hunting. And like mm-hmm. Sorrow can even equip the Ragnar exclusive sphere and Alina's claws. It's it's crazy how overpowered they made him but they, i mean th- this is just a, a fun toy to play with in the post game so I, i'm not upset by how game breaking he is if, if anything i celebrate how game breaking he is <laughs> it's I mean, cool, if you yeah. want to get all his equipment you have to use him to break the game because you have to like beat those two in like 10 turns or i think actually you have to beat them in 15 turns to get the helm i think i think it's i think you just need to beat them to get the first couple pieces but then for the last two things or something, it's like what well, you beat him in twenty turns and then ten turns. It's, it's something like that. I think it's not ten to get the. <laughs> you can get an old version of Sorrow after like the eighth time you beat them. Um, and I think what? you have to beat them in in ten turns for that, <laughs> and like it, they go to like your 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 town that you're building. Um, oh, if, if you're okay. Doing yeah. That side quest. Oh yeah, yeah immigrant town. That, that's a, that's a fun little side quest, isn't it? it, it the, mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, anything where you sort of build up your own little town and uh, get benefits from that, I, I always enjoy. It's, I mean, it's Suikoden fan here, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a highlight of every Suikoden game. Um, it's maybe my favorite part of Breath of uh, Breath of Fire 2. You, you thought I was going to say Breath of oh, the yeah. Wild. Oh, that, that happens I forgot about that in Breath of Fire 2. It oh, happens my goodness, in Breath of Fire yes. 2 and Breath of the Wild. So, so games with Breath in the title just love letting you build your own town. And, and I think um, the... The end game benefit of it is I think you get a couple mini medals only in the town if you build it up to a certain degree. Yep. And mm-hmm. the, uh, the the shops that you eventually unlock in the town sell all kinds of uh, exclusive stuff. So it's it, it, it's fun. It's rewarding. Um, the Chapter 6 stuff with Sorrow, uh, taking down Amon is fun, but it's uh, not really necessary. I, I think Dragon Quest Four ends sort of beautifully, even if you just play through Chapter 5 normally. But, but, but 6 is just you know some tasty icing on the cake. Sorrow yeah. is also a nice inversion of the um, the old Magus is weaker when he joins you trope. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he comes in and just starts beating face day one. You know, he looks a little bit like Magus as well. I think I think Rob Steinman mentioned that on the draft on the draft episode. But like, like you know, you know, Magus and Sorrow looks like they could be cousins that see each other once a year at the reunion. Right. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, it may, it's just those uh, those pointy-eared, um, sharp-features demon faces that uh, that Akira Toriyama likes to draw. But, I mean, I, I think Magus and Sorrow are both dope as hell. So, I mean, 
keep doing what you're doing. Those long, beautiful locks, too. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> now, not a fan of, sh- of facial hair, but definitely, definitely flowing locks. <laughs> so, this episode had... dedicated to Toriyama hair. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Wait, wait, who for real? Who has better hair? Um, the 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 heroine, Sorrow, or Ragnar's spruce mustache? Oof. Ooh, I mean, that's tricky. Could we could we combine all three of those onto one character? I'm trying basically to think. Have, yeah, basically a person growing their hair in three different directions: up, out, and front. <laughs> this is essentially a flock of seagulls situation we've got working yeah. here. The phrasing yeah, of we, that. This might this might be a cousin it from Adam's family situation we have here. It could be. <laughs> I'm here for it. I'm here for it. Adam's family. Now there's. There is a that would make a great RPG. I would play an Adams Family RPG Me. in half a second. Me too. You could recruit all. Oh, yeah. Oh, Are you yeah. gonna call something Fester's Quest and not make it an RPG? Come on. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man. Okay, so I don't think we're ready to end the episode yet, but we are. We are knocking on the door if we're talking about um, Adams Family <laughs> RPGs. Um, because I mean, I mean. I mean, Gomez and Morticia, what a power couple. That's... Ugh, goals. Absolute, absolute goals. You, you know, um, one thing I like about the end game is they give you that little uh, Mega Man section where you have to defeat four bosses to to, to, mm. um, to level yeah. the four barriers with, with Amon being one of the four. You know, that's fun. I, like, I, I, I don't mind seeing that kind of thing in an RPG because it sort of gives character and color to different villain monsters. They each have their own sort of gimmick. Uh, it, it gives you something to do in the weird final map. I, I, th- I thought that was cool. Yeah. And uh, also, Prue Loss is, an, is a jerk. Like he, he he literally tries to pull a major look on you. Oh, yeah, that one that... Did we fall you for it? You don't turn your back on your enemy. Did yeah. we fall for it? Yo, oh, yeah, I, I, think you, I think you actually have to in order to get to the no, fight. No, if you talk to him... You do not. Uh, then you do oh, not. If you, nice. if, you talk, if you talk to him instead of turning around, the fight begins normally. But, uh, I'm if you, oh, yeah. yeah. If, if, <laughs> no, I told him. Oh, you turned? No, I talked to him, yeah. Okay, yeah. So, but if, you, if you turn your back, then he, he gets a free turn on you, which is annoying. So that's also a nice point where like you kind of finalize your party and you get to try them against like harder enemies. Um, figuring out kind of who I was going to use at the end of the game as if they weren't going to die on Pissarro was fun. (laughs) (laughs) We are recording this in mid-May, and um, you'll be listening to it, uh, listeners, a few days after we're done recording it. But we know that there is a Dragon Quest 35th anniversary special announcement coming in late May. I forget the exact day, but it is uh, is something like the last week of May. So we, we, we don't know anything about it yet. There's all kinds of rumors about it, whether it's a remake or Dragon Quest Twelve or or what have you. But I I want to you know get a little bit less retro for once and prognosticate a little bit. What's either something you think might happen at that announcement, or which I believe it's a it's a it's a press conference or a live stream or something. What what do we, what do, we do we think is something that's going to happen or something that you want to happen? Uh, mm. I'll 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 go first. Give you guys some time to think. I want. A Dragon Quest Musou game, Heroes Three, but with Dragon Quest Eleven characters in it. Because if there was any, mm-hmm. if there was any, but anybody made for that kind of game, it's Jade. Yeah. And, <laughs> yes. And uh, and uh, again, I only messed around with Dragon Quest Heroes One and Two a little bit, um, but it's not. They're not my. It's not my favorite genre of game. But it, now that Dragon Quest is uh, is you know has already had its eleventh game remade twice. It's it's time to get into some Dragon Quest side games, and I think might might be the time for Dragon Quest Heroes three. But what other ideas do we have 
I, I actually, I think that they will probably port the Zenithius trilogy to the Switch. Um, it's an easy, it's an easy change. They, it's it's an easy money maker. I mean, um, you, you don't have to do much to them, um, given that they already have them in mobile form. Um, like if it was just like the, if they only had the DS versions, that would be more complicated. But I, 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 I it just seems like easy money sitting on the table that I'm guessing they will do. Whether we'll get it or not is another question, I suppose, but mm. depends on how well 1 through 3 did here. Um, yeah, but, but that's right. 1 through 3 are on Switch, but 4, 5, and 6 are limited to the DS and mobile ports. Mm-hmm. So yeah. having those on, on Switch or PS5 or, or elsewhere would would probably be a money maker if it's not too much if it's not too resource intensive yeah well i mean the live stream is the first one that's being dual broadcast in english as well ever so that should tell you that the series on its own has really grown in popularity over the last couple of years so i'd be surprised if anything announced on it isn't like a dual announcement essentially i'd hope anyway maybe i'm just being really optimistic but yeah i I don't have numbers but i think dragon quest 11 did very well because it uh it, there was over a year between Dragon Quest XI in Japan and the first PS4 release in the U.S. I think I think it was like July 17 to September 18. Yeah, it was. But it, it's been remade and re-released in a way that makes me think it did well worldwide. So uh, to have this simulcast in English, I think this could be a very big announcement, probably bigger than the Dragon Quest Heroes 3 that I proposed. But uh, <laughs> what I'm really yeah. hoping for is Dragon Quest 9 on the Switch with online. Functions. Yeah, oh, that'd be yes, nice. that would be awesome. <laughs> That's the remake that I think is the most urgent because, I mean, the previous eight have all been remade at least once. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be there. So there. <laughs> I'm, I'm dreaming a dream of Dragon Quest 10. I'm not going to lie. I wow. would yeah. love if they did Dragon Quest 10. Do you what? want it to be a the, the full MMO I, or or a way or something that was remade or restructured for single player? I think if they were going worldwide, they'd almost have to restructure for single player because I don't think they're gonna make the profit needed to do it as an MMO in the West. I, Maybe I, that's I, just I, me. I'm, like, I'm already sort of like consumed with this other MMO. Yeah, so. <laughs> I don't know if I've got it. enough room in my heart anymore. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, mean, right, and if it goes right. MMO, I I will definitely sub. 100%. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I am on break from that other MMO, and I'm playing an action RPG that plays a lot like an MMO. So I'm, my, my, my time is not. I don't know if it was that precious because I mean, look what the hell I'm doing with it. But it's uh, <laughs> but, but, but a, a, a full MMO version of Dragon Quest X would be a huge temptation. Uh, Audra or Alana, do we have any other ideas? I was agreeing with the Dragon Quest X actually. So. I mean, yeah. there's 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 one that's just sitting out there that we haven't said yeah. yet. Yeah, I think I think Dragon Quest Twelve will be teased. It would be weird to have the 35th mm-hmm. anniversary without the next big game in the series. Like what, 2017? So that's four years since Dragon Quest Eleven originally came out. Believe it or not. So yeah, four four years. We wouldn't accuse them of overexposure for that kind of differential. No, and I think I think we'll get even just like a little teaser, but like we'll have it next year or maybe 2023 at the very beginning because oh, those development be, cycles cool. aren't like too long um what i'd love though is a new composer thanks like that, <laughs> yeah. would, that would be the Agreed. 35th anniversary just like oh you know suyama doesn't want to compose anymore great wonderful oh Con- no what, what a, a shame oh. oh no and there's so many talented composers that square enix either employs or works with all the time oh no <laughs> so there you go please give me that square enix that'll be great thanks all right. So, okay, D- Dragon Quest Twelve is eight Dragon Quests after four. So I, I think if we're talking about um, future Dragon Quests, maybe we've exhausted our discussion on 
of the Dragon Quest that we've been playing for the past couple of weeks. But uh, listeners, thank you so much for joining this, joining us. Whoops, on on this journey through Dragon Quest Four, over thirty year old RPG that held up surprisingly well. Um, the tone of this podcast was very positive overall. I mean, what, what's a, what's our biggest complaint here? I mean, I think I, I think that maybe. Tornico's not weird enough. I, I wish I wish he gave me more. Of, I wish he gave me more of a reason to use him other than the flail of say, destruction. Like, well, I actually wish that I had any reason to ever put him on my party after chapter three. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Make him like the only person that can use the liquid metal sword or something. And then, <laughs> oh. then he... <laughs> or the only person you can have the falcon earrings on or something. Yeah, right. Oh, but yeah. I think even when you get the flail of destruction, which is hard to get because you have to either build up your town all the way or get or get 45 mini medals or some crazy number like like him and Ragnar can use it. So why on earth would you would you give it to to non Ragnar? Hard mode? I don't know. Like, yeah. Put a boat yeah. in your party. the game with just Tornico. Oh, but yeah, there you go. both in your party, two flails of destruction. That's that's the move. Thank you, Wes. Um, <laughs> yeah. Listeners, uh, we all really liked this game. It comes wholly recommended. We apologize if you listen to this podcast without uh, playing the games. Now you know every. Now you know everything there is to know, mostly. Uh, but this is a great game, and it comes wholeheartedly recommended. And maybe if Zach is a proper Zach Stradamus, we'll be able to play it on the Switch soon. One can hope. <laughs> yeah. I guess it's time to end the episode. Thank you so much for listening again, listeners. Uh, next week, we are going to be rehashing part of what we did in this episode because we are doing uh, an RPG villains episode and it is going to be about Sorrow the Manslayer. I think he's probably the best Dragon Quest villain and we're going to go even deeper into him than we did in this episode in the next episode. So RPG villains, Sorrow the Manslayer coming next week. But what's after next week? It's the month of June. Um, in June, we have a couple episodes planned. Uh a, a little while ago, I said that we were going to have an episode on on uh, Final Fantasy XIV Shadowbringers, and we still are. And also, we're going to have an episode on Near Replicant, but I'm delaying Near Replicant uh, f- one month, so that's not going to quite happen in June, and replace it with an episode about Monster Hunter World and Monster Hunter Rise. If you think that's because I delayed starting Near Replicant because I got addicted to Monster Hunter Rise, uh, first of all, how dare you? And second of all, that is absolutely correct. I, w- um, I want to be disappointed in you, but I just know you too well. I knew the minute you picked that up, I was like, well, he's gone. There you go. <laughs> yep. You you did not tell me that, but I I believe you when you told me you 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 knew that. Um. So anyway, in coming in June, an episode about Shadowbringers, an episode about Monster Hunter, and two episodes about Knights in the Nightmare, which is a Sting Department Heaven game from oh around ten or twelve years ago, and it is super weird and cool. And I'm sure we're going to have a weird, cool pair of podcasts about it about one month from now. And uh, and uh, but following that, we are going to do an, an episode on Near Replicant. I did not axe it; I only delayed it. That should be coming in early July. But listeners, uh, if you want to contact us directly and tell us whether I should have moved near or not or anything at all, the best way to do that is to email retro at rpgfan.com. You can also comment on RPG Fans message boards, visit our Facebook page, our Instagram page, our Twitter page, our Discord page, our YouTube page, our Twitch page. So many pages, all of them called RPG or RPG Fancom, and uh, so many ways to interact with us. You can also interact with us in a uh, omni- in a single directional manner by listening to our other podcasts. In addition to Retro Encounter, there is Random Encounter every two weeks about randomness, Rhythm Encounter every two weeks, mostly, about RPG music, and Phoenix Edge usually every week about a wide variety of topics. You can review all four RPG fan and affiliated podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you can listen to podcasts. Give us feedback. We love feedback. And speaking of us loving feedback, how do you provide feedback to us in a more individual manner? Let's share our social media, starting with you, Zach. Uh, you can email me at ZachW at RPGFan.com, or you can find me on Discord at ZachW. And now Audra. 
Um, you can email me at audrab at rpgfan.com. And now Alana. Uh, if you want to find out about that MMO, you can follow me on Twitter at Alana Hagues, or you can find me on Discord as Alana. And Wes. Uh, you can check me out on Twitter at Wes Iliff. It is a mistake that I heavily encourage you making. And speaking of Twitter mistakes, the best way to find me is on Twitter. I am at the Real Monsoon most of the time, at Evoker for Dogs other times. Uh, a lot of Monster Hunter on those Twitter accounts the past couple of weeks. Um, I, I will eventually settle down and play less Monster Hunter over the summer when Ratchet comes out. I finally get into Nier. I finally play the games we're, play, we're uh, playing for the podcast later on. But right now it's a lot of Monster Hunter. I'm not going to deny it. Deny it. <laughs> but if you want to talk about monsters of dragon quest or monster hunter or of any kind at all you can find me on those two places and also rpg fans discord where i am monsoon mike uh oh man, we didn't even talk about the great monster designs in this game how how, how good are they <sighs> oh, dude yeah they're awesome they're really awesome. Awesome. not enough dragons them. actually <laughs> you know a little they unusual make up for it with sparky they do make up for it with sparky sparky is adorable but i didn't use him you do get a nice dragon god to talk to in zenithia and sparky who has a the rare uh character level of question mark question mark (laughs) okay so uh from all of us at retro encounter plus sparky listeners thank you good night (laughs) and good luck